Previously on Lost in Mexico. Mexicans are fantastic at cultural appropriation, no? <laughs> I personally think it's better to think that no food belongs to everyone. Um, those people that say it are usually very political and they have a mouthpiece and they just go around saying it and everybody thinks, oh, lots of people must believe that. And honestly, I don't think they do. So are the celebrity chefs Enrique Olvera and Rick Bayless right? Is the cultural appropriation of Mexican food a manufactured debate? A shouting match on Twitter that's disconnected from reality? Here's one of Mexico's leading food writers, Alonso Ruvalcaba. I don't really give a fuck about that. I think there is a kind of fake uh, debate where Mexican cooks or anthropologists grasp into buzzwords and uh, try to trade them into, into Mexican problems. As a former debater who's always had to argue both sides of an issue, I'm usually skeptical when people tell me that something is a fake debate. So for this week's episode, part two of a three-part series, I tracked down the cooks and anthropologists Alonso was referring to, Renata Lira, a former employee of Enrico Olvera, who's become one of his fiercest critics. This is not an Enrique Olvera recipe, and he didn't learn to make moles in the, in the culinary institute of America. And Yasnaya Aguilar, an intellectual from the indigenous Mije people, who's probably the leading voice against cultural appropriation in Mexico. That will be cultural appropriation because he is selling and he has more possibilities to do that in, in New York than people from Oaxaca. This episode ripped me out of the high-end chef bubble and into some very real and very heated debates. Is Enrique Olvera right that food belongs to everyone? Or is that just a convenient fiction, a free pass for powerful chefs to exploit the culinary traditions of minority groups? What responsibilities do foreign chefs like Rick Bayless have to the indigenous communities that they took their recipes from? And then there's the really hard question for Mexico, and all countries with tortured histories of colonization. Is the appropriation of indigenous food something we should celebrate? A way to unify people from very different backgrounds? Or is it exploitative? A way for elites to cherry-pick parts of indigenous culture for their own use, while leaving systemic inequalities intact? This episode is ostensibly about food, but it's also about so much more. This is Lost in Mexico. Act 1. Is this even a debate? If you listen to the first part of this series, which you should, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the cultural appropriation of food was a non-issue, a complaint that defies reality. After all, so many dishes now considered traditional, authentic staples of one culture Vietnamese banh mi, Indian biryani, Japanese ramen, are actually a fusion of ingredients and techniques from different cultures. So there's an intuitive appeal to Enrique's argument that food belongs to everyone. Talk about a taco al pastor, no? That's a Lebanese kebab. I don't know, if you think about pasta with tomatoes, that cultural appropriation from noodles from China and tomatoes from Mexico. But is it really that simple? Does the fact that we regularly borrow from other cultures in our cooking mean that the cultural appropriation of food isn't a big deal? If the activists are right, am I now not allowed to make pad thai? That's a purely hypothetical question, as I've never cooked in my life. But moving on. I think 
the thing that some people don't consider about cultural appropriation is that it has to do with privilege. This is Renata Lira. She's a cook and food writer who was briefly Enrique Olivera's communications director before becoming a trenchant critic of his in her blog, Atole. Renata's smart, direct, and happy to ruffle some feathers. It's, it's about a culture that is a dominant culture, mostly you know, white, a white culture, that is profiting, and like significantly profiting, from the cultural, uh, cultural ideas of a minority. After listening to our last episode, Renata sent me a message explaining that her old boss had missed the point about cultural appropriation. Tacos al pastor are the result of a typical case of cultural assimilation, not cultural appropriation. A group of Lebanese migrants comes to Mexico. They bring with them a brilliant traditional way to cook real meat called shawarma. The Mexican culture happily absorbs it and enriches it furthermore with its own cultural elements. It paints it with new condiments, serves it in a corn tortilla, covers it with minced vegetables, adds a small dose of acid, dresses it with spicy salsa, and with a gracious and precise finishing movement, tops it with a sweet and sour bite of pineapple perfection. The taco al pastor is like a hug between cultures. It is the food of the people. It is the result of a horizontal process of acculturation. Cultural appropriation has to do with privilege, with white, male-oriented, western-minded, vertical privilege. So for Renata, there's nothing wrong with hugs between cultures, people sharing ingredients, techniques, and recipes, and creating something new and beautiful, or not so beautiful in the case of my hypothetical pad thai. And it's hard to disagree. Indian food would be a hell of a lot worse without chilies from Mexico, and Irish food unimaginable without potatoes from South America. They're probably equally tasteless. What she's frustrated about is powerful chefs, usually white, rich males, extracting fame and profit from the culinary traditions of indigenous communities and the generations of female cooks who develop those recipes. And her main target is Enrique Olivera. In part one of this series, we discussed Enrique's world-famous dish, the mole madre, a reinvention of Oaxaca's classic mole negro, or black mole. Enrique grew up in Mexico City, and he told me that he only found out about the Oaxacan tradition of reheating mole when he spoke with Ricardo Munoz, the authority on Mexican gastronomy you heard from in the last episode. Enrique's never denied that his celebrated mole madre is inspired by the Oaxacan dish. I, I don't believe that I created uh, mole, no? The recipe that uh, we like is the black mole from Oaxaca, and our recipe of the mole madre is based on, on a black mole recipe. But that hasn't stopped chefs and food critics from lavishing praise on Enrique, treating him as the sole author of this dish. I think the dish that Enrique will go down in culinary history for, above all others, is his take on mole. It's so good, it's so intense, it's so complex, and yet it's so simple. Renata told me that Enrique shouldn't be lauded as the visionary creator of Mole Madre. She said that he was using his power as an elite, Western-educated chef to profit from the culinary labor of Oaxacan women. Because this is not an Enrique Olvera recipe. He's made, it's made him famous, but it, Mole is not that something that was in his culture or anything. 
he didn't grow up making moles, you know, and he didn't learn to make moles in the in the Culinary Institute of America. It was somebody else that made that mole, and then he created all of this narrative around that mole, which is genius, and the idea of putting it like one in the center and the other one. It has it has a very artistic, uh, interesting part to it. But I think it's controversial because of that, because there's history behind it that's that's not being credited for. Enrique could be accused of having it both ways. He says food belongs to everyone, and is careful not to claim that he created mole, while getting Netflix specials for being the visionary behind the mole madre. No matter how humble he sounds in interviews, he's still profiting from the creativity of people who get little to no recognition outside their communities. After all, when was the last time a traditional indigenous cook was recognized for their artistry in the Western press? But then again, what is Enrique supposed to do? Does he need to give credit or a cut of the profits to every person who contributed to a dish that has evolved over hundreds of years? Or just stop selling mole altogether? And then there's the question I've been wrestling with over the last few months. Can a Mexican chef like Enrique Olvera be guilty of appropriating a dish from his own country? Act 2. Can a Mexican appropriate Mexican food? Let's assume for a moment that Enrique Olvera is wrong. Food doesn't belong to everyone. And only people who are a part of a culture can profit from that culture's food. Where does that leave Enrique? He's a Mexico City chef who's become world famous for adapting mole developed by indigenous communities in Oaxaca, one of the poorest states in Mexico. Is he guilty of cultural appropriation? Some would say that that's a no-brainer. He's Mexican, so of course he has the right to profit from a classic Mexican dish like mole. He's not some gringo trying to elevate a dish that he first tried at a food truck on Cinco de Mayo. Even though many moles were first developed by indigenous groups, it's now described as Mexico's national dish, and eaten by people from very different backgrounds at major celebrations, like weddings and baptisms. And it's probably fair to say that food is a unifying force for many Mexicans, something that bridges the deep divides between different classes, races, and cultures, something everyone can share. When you walk past any taco stand in Mexico City, you might see a construction worker about to knock off work, a doctor still wearing her scrubs, and a lawyer in a suit and tie all lining up for the same 10 peso taco bubbling away in a pool of fat. Lalo Placencia, a chef and gastronomic researcher, told me that although Mexico has many problems, when you eat a taco de carnitas or a taco de chicharrón with habanero, that's it, you know? The problem is over, it's forgotten. And that is something that I think few countries can enjoy. So that's one side of the argument. Enrique can do whatever he wants with Oaxacan mole, even though he isn't Oaxacan. If anything, he's a Mexican hero, helping mole achieve the international recognition it deserves and lightening the wallets of rich tourists. But some people think that Enrique's success is yet another example of Mexican elites taking from indigenous culture for their own benefit, without doing anything to address the racism and economic inequalities facing indigenous groups. To understand this argument, you need to know a little bit about Mexico's complicated but fascinating racial politics. Mexico, in many ways, is as racist a society as the US. This is Fer Navarrete, professor at the National Autonomous University of Mexico 
and author of Racist Mexico, an accusation. Race or skin color is a very important factor in, in inequality in all aspects of life. Just as in the U.S., Blacks have shorter lifespans, they have shorter life expectancy, they have less than a quarter of the average wealth of white families. In Mexico, darker people have about a third of the chance of going to university as lighter lighter skinned people. Indigenous people have two or three years life expectancy less. 99.99999% of the time, being white in Mexico is very convenient. People assume you know more than you do. People assume you, you, have, you are better educated. People assume you are wealthy. They treat you better. They let you in everywhere. You have so many advantages. So far, nothing all that surprising. Being lighter skinned is an advantage in most countries. I still cringe when I think about the fair and lovely skin whitening ads plastered all over billboards in India. But what makes Mexico different is the governmental insistence that it is a post-racial state. Since the Mexican Revolution in the early 20th century, the official national ideology, mestizaje, has suggested that all Mexicans are mestizos, a mixture of indigenous and Spanish. The basic idea is that Mexico, unlike the US, can't be a racist country because everyone is mixed and there are no separate races. But the facts are damning. Darker-skinned Mexicans earned 41% less on average than lighter-skinned Mexicans, according to a Vanderbilt University study. And the National Council for the Evaluation of Social Development Policy has reported that nearly 70% of Mexico's indigenous population lives in poverty. And then there are the cultural divides. Here's Renata again. We have a white dominant culture here, the European, and then we have all these cultural minorities. We're all said to be Mexicans, but, but then... There are so big differences. Like sometimes the dominant, the dominating culture doesn't have anything to do with cultural minorities. They don't speak the same language. You know, they don't have the same customs. They don't have the same way of life. They don't have the same worldview. So how does cultural appropriation fit into all of this? Some people argue that the Mexican state has had a long history of using indigenous symbols to build a shared mestizo identity while simultaneously denying Indigenous people real equality. Mexico was not created through a pact with the peoples and nation who were to constitute it. This is Yasnaya Aguilar, a linguist and activist for the Mije people, one of Oaxaca's largest Indigenous groups. Yasnaya lives in Ayutla, a mountainous town in Oaxaca that hasn't had drinking water since an armed group took over its spring over three years ago. Instead, a small minority created the nation by attempting to make indigenous people disappear into a new, new category called mestizo. As they oppressed them, the nation took elements from their cultures. It placed them in a large basket called Mexican culture, from which the population can take the contextualized elements and call it a homage to their roots. Yasnaya told me that the Mexican state had a long history of using indigenous imagery to build national pride. Think the representations in Diego Rivera's iconic murals, while erasing indigenous people in the present. Her comments really struck a chord with me. I'm from Australia, a country that has long celebrated indigenous symbols, boomerangs, didgeridoos, the dream time, without reckoning with centuries of dispossession and ongoing discrimination. 
Fair told me that food was a way for culturally white elites to feel connected to Indigenous Mexican culture, without having to address the systemic racism against Indigenous peoples. I think the food is one of the main elements of pride of, of Indigenous origin. So we are mestizo because we may speak Spanish and we, be, we may have studied at Harvard and we may be like, you know, I know neoliberal economists and all that, but we love our Mexican food. So it, that's, that's a kind of cultural appropriation too. <laughs> Whitened, mestizo, urban, modern elites look at this food as a kind of comfort, uh, identity, affirmation. We, we are proud of our, Mexic, of our indigenous past. We are all proud of the pyramids and the Aztecs and all that. But in the present, we don't look at Indians in the same way. We look down at them because they're primitive, because modernity is only associated with whitening and becoming mestizo. So what's all of this got to do with Enrique? Well, although he doesn't look as white as some of the actors on Mexican telenovelas, see episode three, it's probably fair to say that he passes as white, enjoying privileges that are inaccessible to non-white people. In Mexico, many of the people who wouldn't pass as white in Europe actually are white within Mexican society because the scale is different. In general, Mexicans have darker skin, so being, having a light skin in Mexico makes you pass as white when you would be seen as brown in the U.S. That happens a lot. Passing as white in Mexico, it's not only about your skin color. For instance, in Mexico City, you can tell the social class and the education level of anybody just by listening to 10 words in Spanish. I mean, it's, like, it's like Britain. The accent betrays class origin immediately. You always know when someone is from Oxbridge. You always know when someone is from East London. So, and also ways of dressing, personal appearance and, and bodily attitudes are very important. For Enrique's critics, he's a culturally white elite who is taking advantage of opportunities that are inaccessible to the indigenous communities that inspired his most famous dish. His mole madre is yet another example of a wealthy urbanite taking and commodifying products from indigenous groups without giving adequate credit or recognition and without fixing the structural inequalities confronting many indigenous people. So where does that leave Rick Bayless, a white chef who's made his name selling traditional Mexican dishes in the US? Act 3. What makes someone an appropriator? On Twitter and TikTok, cultural appropriation critiques can be pretty simplistic. If you look white and try to do something with another culture's food, you're automatically a cultural appropriator. Case closed. But the activists I've spoken to over the last few months, Mexicans who are deeply immersed in racial and social justice movements, have a much more nuanced take. Generally, they have three concerns with foreigners selling traditional Mexican dishes in fancy restaurants in the West. The first is that something is lost when dishes that are collectively owned by a community, central to its rituals and traditions, are translated to a Western culture that celebrates the individual genius of celebrity chefs. Take the mole madre, a collectively owned dish that is converted into a dish attributable to one person, Enrico Olvera. Here's Yasnaya again, talking about the traditional mije dishes she grew up eating. For us, there is not an author. Um, who say this is my vision, it's my invention by myself because I am a genius. A traditional cooker is only the, a person who knows that community knowledge about how to prepare a special dish and how many chiles and uh, ingredients you need to prepare a mole for 1,000 people, for example. 
But uh, that elements are translated into another system uh, where the individual genius, like a chef, is uh, inventing some uh, some dish from nothing. And that's not true. Um, capitalism and Western culture has an obsessed relation with the idea of author and individual genius. The second concern is cultural theft. Guillermo Martinez, a sociologist and doctoral candidate, told me that he was concerned about the behavior of chefs like Rick Bayless as it fitted a pattern of Americans exploiting Mexico's cultural heritage. I, I do have a problem with this. I think this is part of um, a larger practice um, that is a consequence of American imperialism in Mexico. So Mexico has since the post-war been seen as a place of resources for the United States and as a place of consumption for Americans. We get this relationship of Americans taking and benefiting from things of Mexican origin and Mexican culture. If you have an indigenous person who is doing the work and then you have a non-indigenous person that's making the money. Um, this is just kind of like classic colonial exploitation that has always been going on in Mexico. And the final point, the issue I've heard again and again, is that white foreigners, people who benefit from privilege after privilege, have a responsibility to try to fix some of the major inequalities facing the communities they draw their recipes from. Luis Hernandez, who runs the Nomad Cook Project in Oaxaca, said that foreign chefs have a responsibility to be politically engaged in the struggles of the communities they benefit from. Take an example. Uh, the government here in Oaxaca, like, they have been, like, you know, like, giving uh, concessions to mining companies. and They're, like, taking the land and the resources from the communities. And then uh, the communities don't have access to water, to running water. That's a big problem. I think that if you, if you want to work uh, in a responsible way as a... As an outsider, you have to have a political posture about this. If you don't have a political posture about this, if you are not like, oh, these are the things that are happening. Like, I'm acknowledging, I'm aware of this, and I'm, I'm, I'm actively fighting against it, then you are, like, part of the problem. Louise told me that foreign chefs like Rick Bayless couldn't hide behind the excuse that they were promoting tourism to places like Oaxaca. Tourism itself could be very harmful. A lot of people say, uh, like, come to Oaxaca, right? Oaxaca is like a destination and you are going to bring business to Oaxaca. And you're, you're going to support things slash helping the, local, the, local, the locals, right? Uh, but very few people really think about who is running this business of tourism in Oaxaca. Um, like, are you supporting like a group of entrepreneurs, like a big capital? Are you supporting who? Like people working in the hospitality industry, like waiters, waitresses, um, cooks, they make a very small wages here. What this person is really getting from, from that promotion. So if promoting tourism isn't good enough, what can foreign chefs do to redress inequality? I asked Luis if he thought chefs like Rick Baylor should give indigenous communities in Oaxaca a share of their profits. Definitely. Yeah. Like, <laughs> of course, like... Uh, I think that's also a big problem, right? Like, hey, I'm come to these, all of these places. I make a book. 
hey, pay to the people that are in your, in your book. Give them a call. If you had a chance to speak to Rick Bayless, what would you say? <clears throat> I don't know. I will, I, I will ask people like him, what are you actually doing to, like, to fix issues like um, income inequality, you know, like racism? Like when you go to restaurants in Oaxaca City, touristic restaurants, who would you see uh, eating in these places? You don't see indigenous people eating there. The indigenous people are the uh, people that are serving, the people that are waiting, you know. Um, I think uh, it's important to have, uh, in Spanish we call it conciencia de clase, uh, something like class consciousness. Yeah, like, because, I mean, it, it's also very easy for a rich person to overlook these things. Even, like, I will ask uh, Rick, uh, how is he even fixing that or working to in his own context? In our next episode, the final part of this series, I put these questions directly to Rick Bayless. Is he a responsible outsider or someone who's unjustly profited from the cultural creations of Indigenous communities? All I ask is this to scratch past the surface of that and look at how transparent I have been because I'm, I'm not trying to say this is my stuff or aren't I great because I, I know how to make these things or anything like that. And I head to Oaxaca, the birthplace of the Mole Madre, to see what some indigenous cocineras, the guardians of traditional Mexican cooking, think about chefs like Enrique Olvera and Rick Bayless profiting from their community's creations. I would be frustrated if a foreign person came and said it's a traditional Oaxacan mole and doesn't use the ingredients that should be used for a mole. Please, if you are going to serve it in your restaurant, give it the place that mole deserves and give it respect. Thank you for joining Lost in Mexico. To never miss an episode, hit subscribe in your podcast app and follow us on Instagram at lostinmexico.podcast. We'd love to know what you think. Please leave us a review through Apple Podcasts and send an email to nita at lostinmexico.com. Special thanks to my executive producer, Kieran Ayer. We'll be back soon with the final part of this series. I'll see you then. <laughs>